This is Cover 2, a podcast on the Cleveland Browns. Hit! Browns are going to win! Mayfield, end zone, Landry, touchdown! With Dan Kadar and Browns beat writer Nate Ulrich of the Akron Beacon Journal and Ohio.com. With Steve Dorshuk from the Canton Repository. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. This is Dan Kadar, joined as always by Nate Ulrich. And we are still in our, our weird office setup where, unfortunately, I have Nate on a speaker phone um, because there's construction like right next door, so it's always super loud and it, it's just weird. So our setup is still weird. But you should be used to that by now if you're a regular listener. So be that as it may, today on Cover 2, we are going to talk about Miles Garrett being reinstated by the NFL after a six-game suspension from smashing Mason Rudolph in the head with his own helmet. Um, we're going to talk about a few different aspects of that, I think. We'll get into the weeds on that. We're going to talk about uh, the coaching staffs more. On our last podcast, we talked about some of the moves the Browns have been making on their coaching staff. They've really, you know, rounded it out pretty well at this point, I would say. We're going to talk about the defensive coaches a little bit. We're going to talk about Alex Van Pelt, the offensive coordinator, a little bit. And if we get into anything else, we will. If not, next week we are going to be previewing the NFL scouting combine and potential Browns roster needs and maybe some roster moves that they could be making. So that that's going to be next week probably. But Nate, let's talk Miles Garrett. I mean, the, the NFL, he met with Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner, and now he is back in full capacity. Six-game suspension, it turns out to be. Are you surprised... I, th- I think we expected it to happen, but are you surprised it happened this early in the off season? Um, I'll tell you what, Dan. I wasn't. My answer is kind of yes and no. Like, if you would have asked me at the beginning of January, I would not have guessed that he would have been uh, reinstated this early in the off season. But once he met with Goodell on Monday, I thought. It would happen this week hmm. so um, that was a foreshadowing on Monday he met with Roger Goodell which we know the league had stipulated at the time of the uh, suspension being handed down that he had to do that that was a step to that was a, a major step in the uh, a major condition in the reinstatement so he did that and uh, two days later they announced that he had been reinstated so um, I think that when you look at it, Dan, the, the six games makes a lot of sense. It was really bad. I mean, there's there's no way around it. You know what he did? It was it was really ugly. Um, I don't think it should define Miles Garrett forever, but it was a really um, you know ugly, violent outburst. And Albert Hainsworth. 2006 stomped on a guy's face and 
he got a five game suspension and that was the you know greatest number of games anybody in the NFL had been suspended for an on-field infraction so Miles Garrett now holds that record not a record you want to hold but he holds it at six games and I think anything more than that would have been um, just a, a little excessive because you know the the precedent was five games. The Albert Hainsworth act was was really bad. <laughs> Obviously, Miles was too. But I don't think, you know, extending it into next season would have been fair, especially when you consider the financial ramifications too. Then he was fined $45,623 by the NFL. But here's the, here's the big one. In lost game checks, losing those six game checks, uh, nearly one point one four million dollars. So that's a lot. Yeah. So um, you know, a big financial loss for Miles Garrett, in addition to the six game suspension. Right. Yeah. It, when you talk about the money aspect of it, it, it puts it in a different light. But part of me wonders a few things about this, Nate. And they are they are as follows. If this incident happened like in week six, I think Miles Garrett might have been suspended the whole year, regardless. I think just the the act of it and the precedent setting uh, nature of it, really. I think it was a year long suspension if it happened before it did. Um, but then I also think you know if it happened in week fifteen. I wonder if it would have stretched into next season at all. You know, like, it, it, the Browns are kind of lucky, sort of, in that regard of when it happened. I mean, you if you had to pick a week for this incident to happen, that might have been the best week for it to happen, which, which sounds weird to say, but um, if it happened any other time, I really wonder what the length would have been. But I also wonder if this were... Ben Roethlisberger and not a guy that couldn't beat out Duck Hodges for a job as the season wore on if the suspension would have been longer. If it was one of the NFL's big name precious quarterbacks if this would have been a much bigger suspension and I kind of think it would have been. Nate, do you have any thoughts on, on those aspects of the suspension? Um I don't know, Dan, because I get your points, but I also think that he might have got a stiffer penalty because it was in a primetime game, the only game on television that night, all eyes on that Thursday night game. Mm -hmm. If it were just a 1 o'clock Sunday, I know it shouldn't matter, but it might have mattered. Right. There's an optics to it. There is, and, and I've heard the argument that, you know, well, it's social media era, it's the digital era, that clip is going to go viral no matter what, you know, even it's 1 o'clock on Sunday. Yeah, it is, but there's just something about, you know, so many eyeballs on that game on live television that I think does add a different dynamic. So I, I kind of think that, you know, that, that played into it, that, you know, 
frankly, people who wouldn't have seen it otherwise, you know, maybe just kind of the, the casual fan, um, you know, and happened to see that. And that kind of person, it might have been lost in the shuffle for. Right. So I just, I just think that there are so many eyeballs on that game. And I think that that's another question you can ask. Would did that matter? And I, I, I lean toward, yeah, it, it probably did, even though it shouldn't have. Yeah. I mean, if you think about this, Dan, I mean, the league acted so quickly. Like, this happens, we're, we're sitting next to each other in the press box. This happens at about almost midnight, right? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the very end of the game, eight seconds left on a Thursday night game. Friday, pretty early Friday morning, um, you know, this decision had to have been made because the announcement came out. I want to, man, I, I can't remember exactly, but I know it still came out Friday morning, maybe in the 11 o'clock hour. Yeah, that sounds about um, right. Yeah, ish. So, mm-hmm. yeah, the, 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 the league acted very swiftly, and um, you know, I think some of that had to do with uh, the fact that this was primetime, national spotlight, all that. So I, I think that could have mattered. I think the quarterback, uh, a bigger name, could have mattered too. Uh, the bottom line is, I, I think that however, wh- whether it would have happened like you're saying in week six and then he misses, you know, more games if they, they just make it a season-long thing, you know, I think it, it whatever the case would have been in that hypothetical, I don't know, but I think that based on that precedent of five games, this was about the right hmm. uh, discipline. And, you know, the other thing is we, we, we would be remiss not to say this. Miles Garrett, there, there's more. This was complicated. Miles Garrett accused Mason Rudolph, Rudolph of using a racial slur, and, and and then there were which none of us heard because that the you know the audio never became uh, available. Even you know, and, and whether it even existed is unknown. Um, so you know, there's that accusation which adds. A, a complicated layer to it, and then there there are the the, the physical acts that um, Mason Rudolph committed to precede the helmet swing, and, and we talked about those many times. But it's been a while, so to refresh, he tried to yank Miles Garrett's helmet off first. He also planted his right foot in Miles Garrett's groin. I'm not saying he kicked. There's a difference between a push off and a plant than a kick. Right. That right foot was in the groin. Doesn't feel good no matter what. Right. And then he charged Miles Garrett. All that preceded the helmet swing. And Mason Rudolph was not suspended. He was fined $50,000 by the NFL. Um, so there you have it. There, there, there's there's a lot going on in this situation. <laughs> and, you, and, and if you discuss the discipline and the reinstatement, I think it's worth you know mentioning that you know there is a lot going on there. And uh, we'll we'll remember forever, Dan. I mean, it, it is something that I will never forget that that night. That right. was wild. Well, and that kind of leads me into my second part of this, and that's where we'll end it with Miles Garrett. Is does this become one of the great what ifs in recent Cleveland sports? I mean, Miles Garrett, as you detailed in your story, which everybody can read over at BeaconJournal.com/Browns. 
he had 10 sacks in 10 games. The defense kind of fell apart after he was gone, maybe for more reasons than just that he was gone, but he was gone regardless. But to me, like, maybe this isn't as big of a deal as Kevin Love getting his arm ripped out of the socket by Kelly Olenek or, you know, Albert Bell, you know, being being played in a short season in 1994 and 1995, and my God, what could his stats have been if those were full seasons in baseball, but I think Miles Garrett and what his season could have been is right up there because it was a year where, you know, people were talking about him, we certainly did before the season, potentially being a defensive player of the year in the NFL. And it was a year where Stephon Gilmore of the Patriots won the award. I don't think... You know, it was a, a landslide win for Stefan Gilmore. I really think Miles Garrett would have been in contention if he played the full season. So to me, Nate, this is going to go down as one of the great what-ifs of, of Cleveland sports, for me at least. I agree. He was a definite candidate for NFL Defensive Player of the Year. He was fourth in the league, 10 sacks in 10 games when it happened. The Browns had 30 sacks in 10 games with him and only eight sacks in the six games without him, they were not nearly as good. There right. are a lot of other stats to back that up other than the, the sack totals. But um, I would kind of even expand on that. Uh, the Browns went 6-10. and ten. <laughs> They went 2-4 and four without him mm-hmm. down the stretch. And we know they blew it all up. They lost to the Steelers in that second game that that second Pittsburgh Cleveland game without him they lost 20-13 you gotta wonder if he's on the field if that's a different outcome you gotta wonder if he's on the field in the finale if it's a different outcome against Cincinnati Uh, he's that good that you Mm -hmm. have to wonder these things let's just say he did make a difference they go 8-8 instead of 6-10 Freddie Kitchens, your head coach, is John Dorsey, your GM. So you want to talk about what if? I can take it to that level. Yeah, and, it's, and I don't it's think it's, I don't think it's insane to, to to discuss it in those terms. I agree completely. So it, it's it's a fascinating thing, and it's you cannot underscore the um, the importance of this event, and this is the bow on it, but. Uh, moving on, Nate, the Browns have a new defensive coordinator for Miles Garrett. Joe Woods is coming from the 49ers, where he was the defensive backs coach. Uh, he kind of helped revitalize Richard Sherman's career. Uh, he has experience in the 3-4 and 4-3. Uh, in Denver, he ran a lot of 3-4 stuff. Then he went to San Francisco. They have this amazing defensive line, and they, they run a lot of 4-3. Uh, he said that he's he's pretty he's going to stick with the four three for the Browns because the personnel warrants it and that kind of stuff. But what do you think about Joe Woods, Browns defensive coordinator? I think he's interesting. He's interesting. He has a history with Kevin Stefanski. Uh, they spent several years together in Minnesota. Um, you know, the thing I like about Joe Woods is. He's not coming in and saying, it's my way or the highway. Yep. Hey, last time I was defensive coordinator, I ran a 3-4, so we're going to do that. He's coming in saying, 
obviously the personnel is, is better suited for a 4-3 here. Miles Garrett's a big part of that. He's your prototypical 4-3 defensive end. We're going to run a 4-3. Uh, I love that. I love that. And, and there's a lot of people who say, well, with the sub packages in the NFL, the 3-4 versus 3-4-3 argument is stupid. It doesn't matter, blah, 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 blah. I couldn't disagree more. I understand the sub packages are, are used uh, a, a lot, you know, 70% of the time, uh, if not more. But 4-3 versus 3-4 still dictates your baseline philosophy for your defense and, and how you approach personnel. Right. I mean, it just does. That's the big John one. Dorsey talked about it all the time. I mean... If, you, if, if people who want to say it doesn't matter on Twitter disagree, listen to some of the things John Dorsey said about it. It does matter. And Joe Woods recognizes that. So bravo. That, that's one of the most refreshing things for somebody to come in and say, you know, I, I'm flexible enough. I'm confident enough in myself as a coordinator. I'm comfortable enough with myself that I don't have to make everybody fit to do, fit, you know, what – what I think is the ideal scheme, I'm going to adjust. You hear so many times, coaches say, "I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to do what's best for our players, put to put them in the best position to succeed." And a lot of times, that's BS. <laughs> you know, that's just a that's just a good thing to say. It sounds good. You know, it, it's politically correct or whatever. Uh, it's coach speak. A lot of guys don't follow through on that. Well, Joe Woods is showing me right out the gate. Um, that you know he has a real chance to 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 practice what he preaches in in, in those terms. So I really like that that he's committed to the four three. And there was there was no beating around the bush. He came out in his in his very first public comments about being Brown's defensive coordinator, and, and had those quotes in, in the initial announcement about him taking the job. So I, I couldn't have been more delighted with that. Mm. I think that's really good. Um. And, you know, the, the, the really positive thing about the timing of the Miles Garrett thing, Dan, that, that we didn't touch on, but I thought we, we could when it comes to Joe Woods. Joe Woods is going to come in here. He's going to be putting his stamp on this defense, just like Kevin Stefanski is on the entire team and specifically the offense. April 6th is when they get to start the voluntary offseason workout program because they have a first-year head coach, so they get a little bit of a couple-week uh, head start over the teams who have returning coaches. Miles Garrett is going to be able to fully participate in every aspect of that off-season conditioning program, just the same as any other Browns player. So that's going to be really important to have him in the building, kind of leading the way as Joe Woods shapes this thing in his vision. Mm-hmm. The other defensive coaches the Browns have brought in so far, defensive line Chris Kiffin, linebackers Jason Tarver, defensive backs Jeff Howard, Nate, do you think the Browns are going to add more on the defensive side of the ball beyond those core four guys? I do, I do. Uh, th- those are the, like, you know, obviously the position coaches and the coordinator we've talked about. Um, <clears throat> I know Fred Pajak we talked about before we started recording is a guy who has a long history uh, with uh, Joe Woods, longtime Ohio State assistant, worked with Woods in, in Minnesota and Denver. 
he might be in some kind of uh, senior uh, defensive assistant role or something like that. That hasn't been announced as an official yet, but I won't be surprised. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's shaping up to be, uh, you know, a, a defensive staff that that you can get excited about on paper because Joe Woods, who's been a defensive coordinator before for two seasons, is coming from a really good uh, 49ers defense that, that was just in the Super Bowl. And, you know, all these guys have worked with him before. The, the, the three position coaches you've, you've met, you mentioned have all worked with uh, Joe Woods before. And, uh, you know, Tarver was a defensive coordinator for a couple of years with the Raiders. So mm-hmm. you got another another coach on there who has that coordinator experience. Um, and, I, and you look on the offensive side with Kevin Stefanski, Obviously, um, you know, you've got uh, the, the big one that everybody got excited about in the Browns fan base, from what I could tell, um, you know, is, is Bill Callahan with his previous head coaching experience and coordinator experience. But, you know, you, you've also got, um, you know, a couple other guys um, on that side of the ball with previous coordinator experience in the NFL, too. The new offensive coordinator, Alex Van Pelt was an OC for one year 2009 with the Bills so it was a while ago but he still has that on his resume under his belt and um, here, you, uh, here's what I'll say about wide receivers coach too Chad yeah. O'Shea I'm sorry here's yeah. what I'll say about Van Pelt quickly I don't know much about him other than what his resume says I just know that Aaron Rodgers was pissed when the Packers got rid of him and that's good enough for me I mean if Aaron Rodgers wanted a guy the Browns should too so, uh, I, I don't know what Alex Van Pelt's going to do to the offense. He's talked about the run game and play action and stuff like that. But um, if Aaron Rodgers wanted you around, that, that's all I need to know. So, not, not to cut you off with O'Shea, but um, and speaking of O'Shea, I'm, I'm excited about him too, man. I'll tell you what, he got a raw deal, I think, in Miami. And before that, he was with the Patriots. And that the Browns that's good enough too so I don't know I, I I'm pretty excited about the coaching staff Nate I'll tell you the, the tight ends coach Drew Petzing is pretty well regarded as a budding football genius um so I, I don't know I'm, I'm excited about the coaching staff yeah like I mean all these guys with with previous play calling experience in the NFL mm-hmm. is that uh, is what I like with O'Shea, Callahan, and um, Van Pelt. So, you know, Stefanski, I think Stefanski's going to call the plays. Hmm. He has said, even after hiring Van Pelt, that he hasn't made a decision on that. I, I just think he's going to. Uh, he was Obviously, he's a play caller all last season and into the playoffs for the Vikings. Van Pelt hasn't done it in, in more than a decade. So based on that logic, I think Stefanski's probably going to do it. Uh, but he is supported by all these guys who've done it before, and I do like that. You know, it's easy to get excited. All these coaching staffs move in and move out, and mm-hmm. people get excited about the new guys all the time and look at the resumes, blah blah blah. Um, but I do like I do like this this group because of that experience that they have at high level in the NFL, and and a lot of them have worked together before, which is important because you need to know that it's going to work. I mean, you throw Hugh Jackson, Todd Haley together. Disaster. 
Freddie Kitchens and Todd Munkin together. Disaster. Right. So, <laughs> I like the fact that there's a lot of familiarity here. You know, people complain sometimes, well, you're just hiring your friends, your buddies, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's just kind of the way the NFL works, though. I mean, I don't get too caught up in that. I think I, I kind of look at the glass half full um, when it comes to that and think that guys know that they work together well and respect each other, and, and that's what you need because we've seen it go the other way too many times here. Mm-hmm. And briefly, the, the Browns made a very interesting hire of Callie Brownson as chief of staff. Uh, the first female coach, I guess you'd call her, Nate, on, on the for the Browns. Um, I'm fascinated by it, and I, I like it. Kevin Stefanski said, you know, he he likes to add diversity to his, his coaching staff, and this is certainly that. I mean, there's not a lot of women in coaching in the NFL still. Um, so I, I like it from the looks of it, but what does a chief of staff do? So Kevin Stefanski actually held this role when he got his foot in the door at the Vikings from 2006 to 2008. He was he had a different title, but it's the same role. He was assistant to head coach Brad Childers. Mm. So it's kind of like a Dwight Schrute title. <laughs> but basically, he was like a surrogate for Brad Childers. He went all over the building, whether he's talking to the... Um, you know, other assistant, if he's talking to some assistant coaches or the athletic training staff or uh, the PR department or somebody in equipment or going to deliver uh, a fine letter to a player who was late to a team meeting, whatever the case may be, this guy, uh, Kevin Stefanski, was like, you know, running around doing things that Brad Childress needed done for three seasons in Minnesota and Stefanski really credits that experience with giving him a great feel for what comes across the head coach's desk daily uh, there's a lot you know it's not just X's and O's game plan uh, getting ready to call the plays if you are a play caller as a head coach it's a lot of administrative stuff a lot of decisions about what hotel we're going to stay in, when we're leaving uh, for this road trip, and are we taking the bus or the plane for some of the ones that are kind of, you know, closer distances and we need to make these decisions. Are we going out to the West Coast a day early or not? You know, um, all that kind of stuff comes across the head coach's desk. Um, and this is just a person who can help uh, the head coach is able to delegate some of these responsibilities to. So, uh, what I've been told is Kylie will have some coaching responsibilities. She's not going to be like a full-time on-the-field coach, but um, Kevin Stefanski uh, announced this. One of his quotes, and I'm paraphrasing, was essentially that he will, he wants to groom her as a head coach. So I, I think it's really cool um, that you know he's given her this opportunity because she is the first woman in the history of the Browns with some coaching duties. Uh, and, and that's cool. And, uh, you know, this has become, uh, you know, uh, something that has emerged in recent years. I got some data from the NFL real quick. Dan, uh, last year, last season, 2019 season, the NFL had a record four, four, excuse me, the NFL had a record four full-time female coaches. Okay. And Callie counted, uh, as one of them with Buffalo. 
uh, Katie Sowers with the 49ers, who became mm-hmm. the first female coach to appear in Super Bowl. Um, and then Tampa Bay Buccaneers had two coaches as well. Bruce Arians hired uh, two female coaches. Uh, and since 2015, this is also from the NFL, uh, since 2015, the league has had seven full-time female coaches and 15 uh, female uh, coaching interns. So there are opportunities that are that are uh, developing uh, more often. Obviously, you know, still not a lot, uh, but it is becoming uh, more common. And I think it's cool to see the Browns give somebody uh, who's really deserving, uh, based on her resume, uh, you know, a crack at this. Yeah, and look, I I just kind of I have a feeling that the the Stefanski coaching regime is, as long as it can survive here is, is going to be a nice little tree that he's he's starting to grow. I mean, whether it's the tight ends coach who I mentioned, you know, becoming you know a, a head coach in the future, maybe it's this woman taking on a greater role in Cleveland or elsewhere, or Jeff Howard, the defensive backs coach, or Chris Kiffin, the defensive line coach, becoming a, a future coordinator or head coach. I think one of the neat things is always like looking back on the Bill Belichick coaching staffs in the Browns and the front office that he put together, and how many of those guys just went on to, to greatness in the NFL. And maybe the same thing can happen with Kevin Stefanski being extremely open to hiring who he thinks are the best people possible regardless of their their gender or their ethnicity so i i think it's great i i don't know i'm i'm really excited about the the coaching staff i guess but in, in wow are you, is this like the your favorite coaching staff of the uh, recent memory it, I think so. I mean, I don't think I've heard you like gush about a coaching staff like this. We'll see, and it could blow up. But the the Freddie thing was just—it felt good at the time. But we we should have seen the writing on the wall. And some of the other ones were just kind of doomed. So hopefully, you know, this guy gets given some time. We'll see. But if history shows us anything with the Browns, it won't happen. But I am. I am more excited about what Kevin Stefanski is doing than previous regimes at the start, at least. So yeah, what well, her Freddie was, he cleaned house essentially. Yes. You know, he got rid of a lot of those experienced offensive assistants. I'm not going to go through all of it we've been through before, but all those guys had key roles right. that helped that team and helped Freddie and helped Baker Mayfield during that five and three stretch in the last half of 2018 then he gets rid of all of them right and for a hodgepodge he, right yeah and todd monkin came in and that never ever worked out they those he and freddie were never on the same page right and you know at the time people complained with bob wiley pointing all this out well bob wiley looks pretty smart right now <laughs> yeah who knew bob wiley is uh the great truth teller and uh, I think that's where we're going to leave it off, Nate. Do you have anything else before we check out this week? I think that's it, Dan. Uh, we'll have, like you said earlier, more to talk about leading into the Combine. So eager to pick your brain about kind of what to watch. Yeah, we will do that. The Combine comes up here at the end of the month. So we're going to go over some interesting things that are are worth following there. We're going to talk about the roster a little more. The league year starts 
pretty soon here, and the Browns have a lot of decisions to make, both with their current free agents, guys they could potentially move on from to save money. Uh, there's, there's a lot of moving parts here, and the team need list, which I have jotted down here on my notes, is for me at least, quite large. So we'll, we'll talk about that more next week here on the Cover 2 Podcast. But thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll talk to you next time.